Welcome to River West Church. Good to have you this morning. Great to be with you this morning. My name is Guy. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church. It's my privilege to open the Bible with you this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers will come and give you a Bible if you want to read on the printed page this morning. My beautiful, amazing wife is at the coast. She had the opportunity to go over to the coast for the weekend with her children and grandchildren. And when she found out that I was preaching all day, three services on Mother's Day, she said, I love you, but I'm leaving. <laughs> and, and she packed her bags and she went off, as she should have. <laughs> that, was, that was a good move on her part. Um, but we have a tradition in our family, and that is every Mother's Day, we read our favorite Mother's Day poem. And because I'm alone and I'm not with my family, you're going to be my family this morning, and I'm going to read to you our Mother's Day poem. This is an annual tradition that we read at the dinner table. It's by Billy Collins, who was the Poet Laureate of the United States for a period of time. You may not know that. It's called The Lanyard. Now, for those of you who are generationally or culturally uh, challenged, I have a photo of a, of a That is a simple box lanyard. You recognize that? That's, a, that's the kind of lanyard that is being talked about in this poem. Okay, you can take it down. It's ugly. All right. The Lanyard. The other day, as I was ricocheting slowly off the pale blue walls of this room... Bouncing from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, I found myself in the L section of the dictionary where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one more suddenly into the past. A past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake learning how to braid thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, <laughs> if that's what you did with them. But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. <laughs> she nursed me in many a sick room, lifted teaspoons of medicine to my lips, set cold face claws on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim, and I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said. Here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, <laughs> which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift not the archaic truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard 
from my hands, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. <laughs> now, isn't that a great poem? <laughs> I love that poem. You know, one of the things that I love about that poem is that it implies a transition of perspective. It moves us from one perspective to another. So the one perspective is the child's perspective. He thinks back and he remembers the perspective that he had as a boy making this lanyard and he, he works through that. But then when we get towards the end of the poem, there's a change in perspective and what you, what you hear now is the adult perspective. As he reflects on this as an adult and his perspective has actually changed and he finally gets it. You know, he finally gets this thing. And I love that. And really, that's the purpose of the poem. The purpose of the poem is to draw us in and to move us to a place of recognition and response. That's what a good poem does. You hear the poem and you go, oh, I get it. I get that. You think, oh, I've been there. Or you realize at the end of the poem, you're not actually just talking about you. You're talking about me. <laughs> You're talking about us. That's the way a good poem works. And so now, awkward segue, let's open the Gospel of Luke. Maybe it's not quite so awkward. Because the amazing story that we're going to read in the Gospel of Luke today is really designed to work much in the same way as that poem. We're going to read an amazing, powerful story about two perspectives, two people that have radically different perspectives on Jesus, two people who have two radically different experiences in their life with Jesus. It's a story of a Pharisee and a woman whose life is touched by the love of Christ. And yet, as we read this story and we get to the end of the story, we begin to realize this story isn't just about a Pharisee or a woman whose life is touched and changed by the love of Christ. It's actually, this story is actually about me. It's about you. It's about me. It's about our perspective. We're supposed to read the story and we're supposed to say, oh, hey, I, I get that. I actually can see myself in that story. You know, that's the way the Gospels work. The Gospels present us picture after picture after picture of life and Jesus and then challenge, the stories challenge us to say, where am I in this picture? Let's read together the Gospel of Luke. I'll read it to you, Luke chapter 7 in verse 36 through 50. Now, it's a unique story only in the Gospel of Luke. Super powerful. Here's the way it goes. Now, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city 
who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and she wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's quite a story, isn't it? It's an amazing story. It's a powerful story. The story is designed to move us. The story is designed to put perspectives in front of us and get us thinking, put ourselves in the picture. This morning, here's what I'd like to do. I want to give you three things that you can do to really feel the full power of this story. And then I want to talk to you about the wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ. So first, let me give you three things that you can do to feel the full force, the full power of the story for our lives. The first thing that you need to do is to enter this picture in your imagination and feel the tension that is unfolding in this room. So we're not going to get it unless we sort of put ourselves in the picture, put ourselves in the scene. Use your imagination. Okay, go there with me for a minute. Let's go back to the top of the story and think through a few things. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with them, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he took his place at the table. Now, we have to pause there because you've got to understand, already there's tension in the story. Why is that? Because if you just go back a few verses, you find out there's all sorts of controversy about Jesus. And the Pharisees are down on Jesus. And you know what they're saying about Jesus? 
They're saying that he's a glutton and a friend of sinners. And so there's all kinds of controversy stirring. And the religious leaders in particular are really worked up about Jesus. So what does this Pharisee do? He invites Jesus to dinner. You've got to feel the tension in that. You know, this guy is kind of taking a risk. Everybody else is, is walking away from Jesus. All the leaders, they're walking away from Jesus. But this guy says, you know what? I think I need to give Jesus one more chance. I'm going to bring him over to my house. And so he takes a risk in doing that. And you need to understand, too, that this scene, this is a big deal. This isn't dash and dine. This isn't, can I meet you down at Starbucks for a cup of coffee? <laughs> you know, and ask you a few questions. He actually prepares a banquet at his house. So there's sort of code in the New Testament. When it talks about reclining at the table, did you notice the word recline? Jesus reclined at the table. It's a picture of a, of a really a special banquet that's being held. And they would set out low tables and couches. And then, and this was kind of the way that they did it in the ancient Near East, they would go and they would actually sort of lay on these pillows with their feet out behind them, which makes my elbow hurt just to think about it. I don't know how they pull this off. But their feet are behind him and they're, they're on a pillow and the table's in front of them and, and it's, it's sort of in a U-shape. There's people serving food on these tables and they're eating the food and they can see across the table in the U-shape. They can see everyone at the table in symposium style, they actually called it in the Greek world. And so this is a formal kind of thing that, that is happening here. And so you need to understand that to really understand this scene. It's a big deal. When I go to Africa sometimes, I have experiences that, you know, they're very different than our culture. And I, I think I shared with you the last time that I went there, I went and I preached at the church in Bujasera, and the church service was four and a half hours long. And then afterwards, Pastor Kayimba said, do you want to go to lunch? I'm like, sure. I'd love to go to lunch. The lunch was three and a half hours. So I, I did one sermon and one lunch and it was seven hours, okay? That's the way they roll in Africa. Because in Africa, they used to say, I don't know if they say it anymore, they used to say, you know, you Americans, you have all the watches, but we have all the time. <laughs> but even at our lunch, it was, we were you know, at this lunch, and I remember a server came and said, what would you like to drink? And, you know, I never drink Coke, but when I'm in Africa, I drink Coke. So I'm like, you know, I'll have a Coke. So literally 10 minutes later, this guy appears with a silver platter and a towel over his arm. You'd think he, I was being served the finest wine in the world. And there's a Coke on a silver platter. And he walks over and presents the Coke to me, puts it down, pulls out the opener, pours it, and hands it to me. It was an elaborate procedure. I was just blowing my mind. I'm like, this is a Coke. <laughs> oh, but you see the meal. The meal, there's something going on here. It's very important. It's very significant. And that's what's happening in this room. And into that situation comes this woman. Can you feel the tension? Verse 37. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, now you understand the scene, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. You need to enter this scene and feel the tension that's happening in this room. This woman is not on the guest list. Meals in the ancient Near East were used to create bonds of fellowship, connections, either peer connections or connections of obligation between people. They were serious matters, and it really matters who's on the guest list. So it matters to be included on the right guest list, but it also matters to be in a room where the wrong kind of people aren't there. This is ancient Near East. It's a huge thing. Some places of the world today, it's just like that. And this woman is not on the guest list, and yet she shows up. How does she get in? Picture the ancient Near East, and in, in a house possibly like this Pharisee has, there's a courtyard and it's kind of open, and the doors are open, the windows are open, and the meal might even have been in the courtyard of the house. And so, though she wasn't invited, it's not impossible for her to just actually walk in, just walk in off the street and just walk into that room, and that's exactly what she does. She just walks in, and everyone's alarm goes off. Like in that moment, alarms, sirens are going off. People are freaking out over this. She is not supposed to be here, but not only does she show up, she's outrageous. She's just outrageous. She's weeping. She has unloosened her hair, which was not to be done in public. For a woman to put her hair down in public is like, some people say it's like going topless. I mean, just in that culture, you just... That's, you just can't do that. And yet she lets her hair down because she's crying so much that feet of Jesus are wet and she begins to wipe with her hair and then she anoints his feet with perfume and she starts kissing the feet of Jesus. I'm telling you, this is radical. Okay, but do you feel the tension in the room? You have to feel the tension in the room in order to get it. And I can guarantee you this, the Pharisee felt the tension. Verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. See, the Pharisee feels the tension. He cannot handle what is happening right in front of him. So number one, feel the tension. But here's the next thing we need to do to get the power of this story. We need to feel the emotions in the heart of this woman whose life has been touched by Jesus. Now, I actually believe the design of this story, I think the main thing in the design of this story is to get us to feel what this woman feels. Now, I've read this story over and over and over again, and I know there's lots of angles on this story, there's lots of important truths, but I actually think the design of the story is to pull us into her experience, is to get us to feel what she feels in that moment. And I, the reason I'm saying that is because the detail that goes into about 
what she does, about her experience with Jesus. I cannot imagine a more powerful picture of a heart that is overflowing with love for Jesus. I just can't imagine a more powerful picture of a heart that's on fire with love for Jesus. Let me make some observations about this woman. First of all, this woman had already encountered Jesus at some point. Her life has already been touched by Jesus. Okay, everything about the story implies this. If you look again at what happens, it says in verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flax of ointment, very expensive perfume. She's planned for this. She's heard. She's keeping tabs on Jesus. She's a Jesus follower. And somewhere along the line, her life has been touched by Jesus. And this is her response. She says, what? He's actually going to be at so-and-so's house? Well, that's not far from me. And she made a plan. She takes the most precious thing that she has and she shows up. Okay, so number one, her life has already been touched by Jesus. And we know that later because Jesus says, to whom has been forgiven much, loves much. At some point, she's tasted the grace of God in Christ for her life. Observation number two, she's incredibly bold and outrageous in her love for Jesus. And not only is she willing courageously to walk into a room of people that are going to be down on her and despise her and criticize her, she does not care. And when she gets there, she just loses it. So observation number three, number two is that, that she's outrageous in her love for Jesus, but observation number three is that she is uncontrollably weeping and sobbing. I mean, the tears are flowing so much that the feet of Jesus are wet. This isn't a drop or two of tears. She just loses it. Have you ever been overcome with emotions, maybe unexpectedly, and, and you just lose it? You just, and the tears just start flowing? Okay, in my life, that doesn't happen very often. I'm not a really very emotional guy, but I'll tell you something. I remember one time when it happened, I was thinking about this today. 9-11. Just after 9-11, I was at a prayer meeting. People had come together, like complete strangers were coming to our church from the neighborhood. Unbelievers. I mean, people were just showing up. They didn't know what to do. We had a prayer meeting. And in this prayer meeting, as we're praying, something happened in me where I sort of felt like I saw the dominoes of what this was all going to lead to. And it, it broke my heart. Because you know what I realized? I realized there's going to be war. There's going to be some form of conflict. I don't know what that's going to look like, but there's going to be, and people are going to die. Lots of people are going to die. And, and then I started thinking about my son 
I'm like, well, what if they start drafting people and my son, go, you know, and, I'll, and you know what happened to me? I just broke down and started weeping. Now, that didn't happen to me. And I just broke down. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> Where you just like, you're overwhelmed. This woman is overwhelmed. And my question is, what are these tears all about? You know what? Let's enter into her emotion. Let's feel her emotion. What are these tears about? We might say, well, these are tears of repentance. She's a sinful woman. There's things in her life that she's ashamed of. So maybe these are just tears of repentance in the presence of Jesus. Maybe these are tears of joy. It is tears. She's overwhelmed with joy. What are these tears really all about? Well, we have to read the rest of the story to find out what these tears are truly about. So let's read the rest. Let's go back and fill in the blank. Jesus gives the parable of the money lender and the two debtors. And one owes 500 denarii and the other is 50. So a denarii is a day's wages. So 50 days wages versus 500 days. You know, one owes... 10 times more than the other. And neither of them can repay. Who will love Jesus more? Who who will love more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he has canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. And then turning towards the woman, he said, this is a great question. Hey, Simon, do you see this woman? (laughs) It's kind of a great question. Like, do you even see her? Do you see this woman? I love the way that the story opened. Behold, behold, a woman came. Do you see this woman? How do you see this woman? It's a great question. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now, do you see in the description, the description expands now. He doesn't just, it doesn't just say that she kissed his feet. It says that from the time she came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. So you get this like overwhelming description of what this woman is doing. It's amazing. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little. What are these tears about? These are tears of love. These are the tears of a woman who's been so touched by the love and grace and forgiveness of God in Christ that her heart is exploding with devotion and love. And it just breaks her down into just weeping Um, for joy, for love, in devotion, with release, like all the stuff she's carried and now she can just let it go. And it's just like waves just breaking over her of freedom and love in Christ. She's been forgiven much. And you know what? She loves much. Her tears are tears of love, loving Jesus So the power of the story is the heart of this woman. 
watching this woman's heart overflow with love. Now, Luke is supremely interested in the human heart. It's one of his themes. Dr. Luke, he's just interested in the inner workings of the human heart. And I think he's just fascinated with this woman. And I think Luke is painting a picture because Luke is thinking about what's going on inside this woman. It is the power of a heart set on fire with love for Jesus. That's what's being described. Now, one of the reasons I know this is because of the way Luke ends his gospel. Do you know this? This is a favorite verse. It's in Luke chapter 24. Cleopas and his buddy on the road to Emmaus and Jesus, the risen Lord, appears to them. And they have a meal with Jesus and they don't really know who he is. And then Jesus disappears and suddenly they get it. It's like, oh, oh, that was Jesus. Take a look at this verse, Luke 24, 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures. This is where the gospel of Luke goes. It, it, in the middle, you've got this woman whose heart is just on fire with love for Jesus. And at the end, you have these two disciples whose hearts are on fire with love for Jesus. It's powerful. It's so powerful. The story is not just about a Pharisee or this woman or Cleopas and his buddy. It's actually intended for us. So what's my heart response to Jesus? I have in, in my class that I teach at Western Seminary, I have three women. And they're, each of them is like an all-star. They're just amazing. Uh, one of them is an associate pastor at a church in Seattle. One has started a racial rec reconciliation ministry, which is powerful. It's really amazing. And one is a super talented singer, songwriter, and worship leader. And these women are just so amazing and I've had the ability to spend a little time with each of them and to hear their story. And there's two things that each of them has in common. The first is pain. Each one of them has a story that has pain in it. For one, it might be a story of a life before faith in Christ. A life in sin, much like the story read today. There's pain and there's hurt there. For one, it might be the pain of having been hurt by significant others, significant people in her life. There's something that they share, and that's a history with pain in it and hurt. And here's the second thing they have in common. Jesus, a deep, passionate love for Jesus so that every time I spend time with them, I walk away inspired primarily by the passion of their love for Jesus. 
That's what's going on in this story. It's amazing. I hope that you feel it. Here's the third thing that we need to do to feel the power of this story. We need to see the contrast between the perspective of the Pharisee and this woman. We need to see the contrast between the response of the Pharisee and this woman. Now, I want you to think about this. The key to the Pharisee in the story is not his view of the woman. That's not the key to his part in the story. I mean, his view of the woman is is like, that's just a given, right? I mean, he's a Pharisee. What do you think he's going to do, right? All of his Pharisee friends are going to feel exactly the same way. That's just what Pharisees do. And they, so they look down on sinners. And so, but the key is not his view or his response to this woman. The key is his view of Jesus. His response to Jesus. That's the key to his part in the story. The Pharisee deals with Jesus on the level of intellect. And this woman opens her heart to Jesus. The Pharisee keeps himself at a distance from Jesus. Isn't it weird? So, you know, in the ancient Near East, to invite an honored guest to a banquet at your house, do you know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to honor them. You're supposed to greet them with a kiss on the cheek. You're supposed to anoint their head with oil, right? You're supposed to to provide for the, the washing of their feet. I mean, these are just the common courtesies that you do. But he did none of them. He didn't do any of those things. And Jesus calls him out. He says, you didn't do these things for me. In verse 44, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet with ointment. You see, the Pharisee, he's keeping Jesus at arm's length he calls him teacher. He, he thinks of him maybe as a prophet. Maybe. Well, I thought you were a prophet, but now I don't. Because if you'd been a prophet, you would have known about this woman. And Jesus is like, well, actually, I do, and I know about you too. <laughs> right? But what's he doing? He's like, teacher, prophet, I'm kind of interested, but I'm going to keep you at arm's distance, Jesus And here's the contrast, this woman who, it's not just about head, it's about heart. This woman who comes in and there's no distance, she's just like breaking barriers and saying, I got to get close to Jesus and she's kissing his feet and boy, what a contrast between these two. This woman sees Jesus as her savior who has the authority to forgive and to set her free. But this Pharisee sees Jesus maybe as a teacher and a prophet, and that's all. 
So the Pharisee's a critic of Jesus. He's there to test Jesus. Have you ever been there? I've been there. <laughs> I've been there. There's a period in my life where, you know, I was kind of interested in Jesus, and I kind of went to church, and I went sometimes, and I talked to my friends about Jesus, and I was sort of interested in Jesus, sort of interested in Jesus, kind of. I'd go to church. Pastor's preaching a sermon. I'm kind of listening, and I'm kind of finding fault. You know, have you been there? <laughs> that's, that's a reality. But wow, this woman, what a different story. The Pharisee sees his sin as small, and the woman knows that her sin is huge. She knows that it's overwhelming. What a radical difference between these two individuals. It's amazing. So now we're starting to feel the power of this story. Now what I want to do is I want to talk to you about the wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Do you know this way the story ends? Take a look at this, verse 50. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. <laughs> it's a great ending to the story. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to take the whole thing and, and wrap it up and, and put like a final point on it. He says, your faith has saved you. This story, at the root of this story, it's a story about salvation. Now, the gospel of Luke is the gospel of salvation. So if we say that if there's a key theme in the gospel of Luke, that theme is the Savior and salvation. The words Savior and salvation are used more in the gospel of Luke by far than in any other gospel. You think about, what are the Gospels about? Well, you know, Matthew, we might say it's the Gospel about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and to learn about Jesus, to follow the teaching of Jesus? Mark, what's it about? Well, it's about King Jesus and the power and the authority of Jesus. And so Mark is the Gospel of Jesus, the King. It's awesome. John is the Gospel mysterious and magisterial of Jesus who is in the flesh, the revelation of God Almighty. Wow. So each, each gospel kind of has a, a theme. What's the theme in Luke? This is the theme. The theme is salvation, the Savior. What does it mean that Jesus is my Savior? What does it mean that I'm experiencing salvation? You'll see it everywhere in the Gospel of Luke. I've pointed this out before in our studies, but I want to go back to it one more time. In Luke chapter 2 and in verse 29. See if I can get there from here. Luke 2, 29. And... The song of Simeon. Simeon says, right at the beginning of the gospel, takes up baby Jesus in his arms. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. My eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding baby Jesus. He goes, my eyes have seen, I'm looking at your salvation. Now the rest of the gospel of Luke is an exposition of that sentence that our eyes might see the salvation of Jesus. And so this story is a picture of salvation. It's a picture. What do we learn about the wonder of our salvation in this story? We learn that the miracle of our forgiveness is greater than we can even imagine. She got it. (laughs) She got it. She's like, I am so guilty. My life is such a mess. I am so under the judgment of God. She got it. And then she encountered Jesus and somehow she realized he has the authority and the willingness to forgive my sins by his grace and restore my life. And it's huge. The gift is bigger than you could ever imagine. And having been forgiven much, she loves much. You can't help it. You just can't help it. Here's another lesson about salvation. Personal faith in Jesus is the gateway to our salvation. Now, you see the way that at the end of the story, Jesus puts an angle on this. He says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. But when you read the whole story, you go, well, wait a minute. I didn't see the word faith before that. I saw love. I saw forgiveness. I saw emotion. I saw devotion. But I didn't see the word faith. So Jesus clarifies it, and he says, actually, everything that you've seen in this woman's life, that's the way faith works. It's personal faith in Jesus. The Pharisee, he's asking intellectual questions, but he does not yet have personal faith in Jesus. He doesn't have personal relationship with Jesus. Oh, but this woman does. It doesn't get more personal. She just, she loves Jesus. She's weeping over Jesus. She's anointing his feet. She's kissing his feet. Jesus is mine, and this is my faith. It's powerful, right? Personal faith is the gateway to salvation. And that's why at our church, we invite every person at River West Church to put their faith, a personal faith commitment in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Nobody can do it for you. It's not enough to just ask intellectual questions. At a certain level, you've got to put your personal faith in Jesus Christ. Here's the third and last thing I want to say about salvation. Salvation is about more than forgiveness. It's actually about a transformed life. It's about a changed life. Jesus said, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You think this lady had a day of peace in her life for a long time? I don't think so. I imagine her carrying the burden of her sin, carrying the shame of how people saw her. 
living in the identity, oh, we know her, she's a sinful woman, living that identity in her life. There's no peace in any of that. And now Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Zechariah said concerning John in his prophecy that the Savior, the Messiah, would lead us into the path of peace, wholeness, restoration. This woman has a changed life. She has a new identity. She doesn't care what these people think. She says, I know who I am. I know who Jesus has made me. It's a transformed life. So powerful. Okay, so here's what you need to know this this morning. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you think, Jesus is on a mission to be your savior. Isn't it fascinating? A Pharisee invited Jesus over for dinner and Jesus goes. He goes, he shows up. He knows this guy is critical, self-righteous, judgmental, and keeping him at arm's distance. And you know what Jesus does? He shows up. Why? Because he's on a mission to become the Lord and Savior of that guy's life. It doesn't matter who you are. Here's a sinful woman. She has a past. She has all kinds of problems in her life. And Jesus is on a mission to be her Savior. Every person in this room, I don't care who you are, what you've done, what you think, where you are on your path or your journey to faith in Christ, Jesus is on a journey to you. He loves you. He's coming after you. He wants you. But you must respond. Don't you love that in the story, we're not told how the story ends with regard to the Pharisee? We're not told. Now, you can walk away and say, oh, well, that guy, you know, he, he, didn't know, he just didn't know Jesus. Oh, but I wouldn't be so quick. The story is left open-ended. We don't know what he did. Why is the story told like that? Because the story is not about him. It's about you. It's about you and me. And the question is, what will we do? How will we respond to Jesus? Let's say a prayer. Thank you so much, Lord, for this powerful, beautiful story. We learn so much, Lord. Um, and, and God, we recognize that you're using the story to call us. You're using the story to open our eyes. Using the story to, to show us the wonder of salvation in Christ. So thank you for that, Lord. And now, Lord, it's our turn to respond. And we want to respond, Lord. We want to respond to you. I pray, Lord, for each person in this room. I pray that we will not keep Jesus at arm's length. I pray that it won't all just be about intellectual questions, but that the heart will be engaged. And I give thanks, Lord that you didn't give up on me, Lord, when I was so much like the Pharisee. And I thank you that you won't give up on anyone in this room. Thank you for it, Lord. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.